Our Bible reading this morning is from Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 50. That is found on page 1,573 in your pew Bibles. And just a reminder for those of you who are here, this is a part of a sermon series on uh, Formed by Jesus. All of these texts are teachings from the Gospels in which Jesus is molding us and forming us into the shape he wants us to be. And I think you will certainly hear uh, the power uh, that these words of Jesus have molding power. Listen. Jesus says, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands and go to hell where the fire never goes out. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted by fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? So have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the word of the Lord. So every week we... Um, announce our church services, all churches do this, we announce our church services online, right? We send out email telling you about the service, we send out things on Instagram, we send out things on Facebook. And those give the service, the basic service details, and they're always accompanied by our theme graphic, okay? We always try to have a graphic that captures the theme of the sermon series. So with Formed by Jesus, we have a pair of potter's hands, gently shaping a piece of clay into a pot. Maybe you've seen it. I wonder, though, uh, if an artist's hands gently shaping a pot uh, are the right kind of formation image for the text I just read. I wonder if instead of a pair of hands shaping a pot, we need a surgeon with a scalpel that is sharp, ready to cut. This is not a gentle formation text. This is a text that calls for radical surgery. If your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. These are hard words. What do we do with these hard words? Do we do anything with these hard words? Let's have a, a moment of congregational participation to sort of evaluate this. And I know you at LaGrave love congregational participation. <laughs> so I'm sure you're all happy for this. Raise your hand if your eye or your hand or your foot has ever been an instrument of your sin or caused you to sin. Raise your hand. I'm raising mine. I think that's everyone here. But here's something I noticed, that when you raised that hand, it was still attached to your body. And I don't see too many eyes that have been gouged out in this sanctuary. What is going on? Are you not listening to the words of Jesus? Are you not listening to the Bible? Should there be more cutting off of limbs in our church? 
no. No, I'm glad that you're not gouging out your eyes and cutting off your hands. And by not doing that, I think you have made the judgment when you heard these passages that Jesus is not to be taken literally here. And when you made that judgment, you were in line with all, just about every single interpreter throughout history. Everybody here thinks that, that Jesus is exaggerating, right? He's using a, what he's using is a rhetorical device called hyperbole. Hyperbole is exaggerated speech that is meant to get someone's attention to get a point. It's not meant to be taken literally. So when your six-year-old son says to you, Mom, if you make me eat those peas, I'm going to die. You don't call 911. Right? You know that's hyperbole, not to be taken literally. So, okay, great. It's not literal. Right? We can just sort of let this go. This, we can, we've done with that passage. Let's go and find a passage where Jesus says something a little more kind and a little more encouraging. Is that what we do? No. Because while Jesus may not want to be taken literally in this passage, he definitely wants to be taken seriously. When you use hyperbole, you're trying to get someone's attention. You're trying to make a point. You're trying to make someone change. And Jesus definitely wants us to change. So what is it that Jesus wants us to take seriously? Why is he trying to get our attention? Well, there's two things that Jesus is worried about clearly from our text. And it's that our actions or the things that we do will cause other people to stumble. To stumble. And there's two sets of stumblers that Jesus is particularly worried about. And I want to go through them one by one. First, Jesus is worried that our actions will make other people stumble. If anyone causes even one of these little ones who believe in me to be stumble, it would, better, it would be better for that person to be drowned, says Jesus. Now, who are these little ones that Jesus is talking about? He uses a pronoun there, these little ones. That pronoun must have a referent. What is that referent to? Well, it almost certainly refers to the passages that go before where we see Jesus interact with people who are on the margins, little ones, weak ones, people who are new to the faith that Jesus wants us to welcome. In particular, at the beginning of this account, it's a child. The disciples are arguing about who's the greatest, like they used, like to do. Jesus is annoyed, so he picks up a young child. It's a beautiful image. Jesus actually picks him up and holds him and says, if you want to be the greatest... Welcome a child like this. That's what I want from you. Forget about all this talk and this discussion about who is the greatest. That's what I want. Welcome these little ones. And then in the story right before, one we just read this morning, it's a, a person who is young in the faith, someone who obviously knows Christ, but, but the disciples don't know this person, and Jesus doesn't seem to know this person, even though this person has been casting out demons in Jesus' name. So the disciples see this strange man casting out demons in Jesus' name and they get proprietary. They do not welcome him. They go up to him and they say, excuse me, sir, uh, do you have authority to be casting out these demons? Because we're Jesus' official representatives and, and we think that you should cease and desist until you have proper authorization. And Jesus says, no, no, no. If he's not against us, he's for us. Let him do what he's doing. Welcome him. 
Right? So both cases, it's these people on the margins and our sort of pride or our officiousness keeps them from coming in, keeps them from getting close to Jesus. Is that something that our actions do as people? Do we do things that keep the weak from coming to Jesus? Yes. I read a story this week said in 1265. It was a story about the explorer Marco Polo made those journeys out east to China. When he made that journey and he started trading with China, he became friends with Kublai Khan, who was the great emperor of that Mongolian empire, right? Which was the biggest empire of the day it stretched all the way from the Black Sea to the Pacific Ocean. There were millions of people, extremely powerful man. And Marco Polo, through his trade, uh, earned the confidence and friendship of Kublai Khan, so much so that when Marco Polo was about to go back to pick up more stuff from Europe to bring it back east, Kublai Khan said, when you go, bring back missionaries. Bring a hundred missionaries so that they can teach my court the ways of Jesus Christ. Teach them about Jesus. He was open to Christianity. What an amazing opportunity. If the court converted, who knows what would happen to the rest of the Mongolian Empire. So Marco Polo goes back and he tells the church he wants 100 missionaries. Guess how many missionaries the church sent? None. They were too busy fighting. Fighting over the church politics of the day. It was 30 years before they sent one missionary. And by that time, Kublai Khan was reported to say, it's too late I have grown old in my idolatry. The church could have welcomed the little ones. Instead, it was a stumbling block. Does that still happen for the modern church? Do we do that today? Yes. Christy, uh, in her sermon of last Sunday night, mentioned a statistic. Apparently back in the 80s when people were asked, uh, what professions they trust in this world. When they were asked about ministers, about 66% of people, two-thirds of people said ministers, yeah, they're trustworthy, yay for ministers. You know what that number is today? Like 33%, like one-third. And you know that's not just about me, right? That's about all of us together, right? We've just, we've, people don't trust us like they used to. Our behavior has become a stumbling block. I'm glad Jesus' words are hyperbole, so I don't have to do anything drastic, but I know that Jesus is calling us to do better. So that's one group of people that Jesus doesn't want to make our behavior to make stumble. That's the people outside. The other people who Jesus doesn't want us to make stumble is us. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. We can be the source of our own stumbling. How do we do that? Oh, in about a thousand ways. Every sin that we are proficient at, our pride, our vanity, our greed, our lust, our envy, our insecurity, our fear, all of these sins individually or combined with each other have an enormous capacity to make us stumble. When it comes to tripping us up, our sin is endlessly and darkly creative. 
Which is why Jesus calls us to be absolutely fierce with our sin. You got to deal with this stuff. You got to cut it out. You got to take out the scalpel and make it go away. He uses that violent imagery that really gets our attention. But he's not the only one, right? If you read the rest of scripture, there are other passages where you have that sense of intensity, even violence, that we really cut our sin away. Romans 8.13. If you live according to the flesh, you will surely die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of your body, you will live. That same sort of sense of violence. Attack your sins. Colossians 3.5. Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Schedule it for execution. But you know these passages, right? You know that you're called to fight sin. You've heard all this before. You know that you're called to cut sin out of your life. So here's my question to you. How's that going? How's it going, cutting sin out of your life? Have, have you cut, lopped off a huge part of your sinful nature and just watched it drift away, never to be seen again? Is that how it's going for you? Let me ask it this way. If we were just the two of us to sit down in our office and I would say to you, can you name a time in your life where you made a move to change your life and lop up a bunch of sin and it just went away and, and you were completely changed from that day? Could you name an event or a day where you cut off sin that way? Some of you probably could, but my guess is most of you would say, you know, I can't. That's just not how it's been for me. The mountain of my sin, that's something that I've been, I've been trying to chip away at. I've been trying to chip away at it with the little teaspoon of my will and my own energy. That's right, isn't it? That's honest. Here's the truth. We already know what we need to cut away. All of us. We know what's inside of us that we need to cut away. We've always known it. We've known what it is. We just, we just can't bring ourselves to take that scalpel and cut. Why can't we do it? It's because in our heart of hearts, if we're honest, we are all addicts. To me, this is the hardest part of Jesus' words here. The way their intensity and how plain they are runs up against my own weakness and yours too. You know what we're like? We are exactly like the, the person who shows up in the very next chapter of Mark, that rich young man who falls at Jesus' feet. You remember this story? He falls at Jesus' feet and he goes, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, well, keep the commandments. And the guy says, I've kept all the commandments. So Jesus looks at him again, looks deeply into him and sees what's really in his heart and says, okay, one thing you lack, you've got to sell everything you have and give the money to the poor. That's radical surgery, right? That's like, he's literally calling this guy to do what he's talking about in our text. He gives the guy the scalpel and, the, and the, he can't do it. He walks away. We are just like that guy. We're just like that guy. Which is why in real life, so often, the only way our sin gets cut away is when God takes the scalpel and does the cutting. Which is why so often the things that make sin fall from our life are events 
that God lets happen to us which are the cause of our change. I'm thinking of John Donne. John Donne was the great 16th and 17th century English poet. Some of you probably studied him in high school, maybe in college. Um, He's known as as a person who wrote a lot of religious poetry. He was a preacher in his later life. He didn't start out that way. He started out as a party animal, okay? He was a good-looking guy, he was strong, he knew how to use words, how to charm people, and so he was a major womanizer, okay? That's how he lived his young life. But then things started to happen in his life, okay? He lost all his money, and that started to change him. He became more deep. He started to move closer to God. Uh, He started to look into becoming a pastor. And then at another critical time in his life, he got so ill that he was sure he was going to die. It was a time of the bubonic plague in London. He got sick, and he thought his life was over. He managed to survive, but his body was severely beaten up after that. That disease weakened him, but at the same time, it made him stronger. His poetry from that point on turned intensely towards the Christian faith. He wrote a series of sonnets called the Holy Sonnets, which are still things that bless people today. He became the rector of St. Paul's Cathedral in London. John Donne died at 58 years old, about my age. He was completely bedridden in the months up to his death, But the preacher was still in him, and about a month before he died, even though he was completely confined to bed, he knew it was the beginning of Lent, and he was determined to preach one more sermon. He begged his friends to let him preach one more sermon. And they they were resisting, but he got up and he did it. He traveled all the way to London, went to St. Paul's, and preached a sermon, which you can still find online today, called Death's Duel. It was like he preached his own funeral sermon and talked about his hope for everlasting life. Isaac Walton, who was his biographer later, was there watching that sermon. And he talked about how when Dunn came up into the pulpit, he was so rail thin and weak and needed so much help that everyone in the congregation said, there's no way this guy is getting through that sermon. And yet, he started out weak, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, he got stronger and stronger and stronger until he filled that room with the good news. After seeing that weak man in the pulpit, Isaac Walton thought of that picture and contrasted it with another picture that he'd seen in John Donne's house. It was a picture, a painting of John Donne when he was 18 years old, and he was strong, and he was good looking, and he had a sword at his side. But at the bottom of that painting, someone had written these words, how much shall I be changed before I am changed. Here's a spiritual exercise. Find a picture of yourself when you're 18 years old or young, and at the bottom of that picture write, how much shall I be changed before I am changed? John Donne, who stood in the pulpit preaching his last sermon, looked nothing like that 18-year-old, and yet, He was stronger and better and more full of light than that 18-year-old ever was. I have a poem by John Donne pinned to my bulletin board right above where I work every day. It's one of his holy sonnets. 
It's a prayer called, Batter My Heart, Three-Personed God. And in that poem, in that prayer, John Donne is asking God to batter him and to do the radical surgery that he cannot do. Listen to the, just the first four lines. Batter my heart, three-person God, for you as yet but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend. You're just being gentle with me so far. That I may rise and stand, overthrow me, and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. He is praying for God to batter him, to do that radical surgery so that he can be holy and whole. Could you pray that prayer? Can I? It's not the prayer I pray most days. I pray for peace and safety and well-being. I pray it for myself and I pray it for the people I love. I do not pray for my soul to be battered and yet God knows I need it and so do you. And so some days Christ holds us tenderly and gently and in other days he lets our hearts be battered. But we can be sure that in all of these days and in all of these things, he is working for the good of those who love him and whom he has called according to his purposes. Because the one who says these hard words and calls us to perform this radical surgery is also the one who let himself be battered and pierced and nailed to the cross so that we could be changed. The one who calls us to this radical surgery is the one who hung on the cross for us so that our small lives could finally take on the shape that he intends for all those he loves. Amen. Lord, these are hard words that we've meditated on this morning. And, and Lord, you know that we need to hear them. Lord, um, that was a hard thing that you did when you hung on the cross for us and, and, and we know, Lord, that we needed it because on our own, we are unable to change what we know needs to be changed. So we humbly pray that by your Holy Spirit, you will change our hearts. And if that change is something that you will do gently, Lord, do it gently. If that change means that our hearts are battered, we're ready for that too. We only ask, that you would hold on to us and make us new. Amen.